Naomi Haidemai, and welcome to Full Disclosure, a Stuff and KL Productions podcast with me, Karen O'Leary. In this series, I talk with all sorts of amazing and famous Kiwis to find out how coming out was for them. This week on Full Disclosure, I talk to the amazing Elizabeth Kirikiri. I'm lesbian femme. If I don't come out, people assume I'm straight, which is a real annoyance to me. So I used to come out all the time, like yep. purposely, mindfully, not let anyone assume I was straight and not let anyone assume that if I was with a guy, that was my partner. How did you purposely come out? Did you just make a point of announcing it to anyone, everyone? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did. Oh, <laughs> it's relentless. Well, hello, and I'm very excited to be joined today by the amazing, the fantastic, the activist, the wahine toa that is Elizabeth Kirikiri. How are you today, Elizabeth? Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, wonderful. It's so lovely to be with you. Obviously, I was talking to you just before we started this amazing chat, and you've been somewhere a little bit warmer just recently. Where have you been, Elizabeth? Uh, I was asked to speak at a conference in Mauritius, and as we say, if you must speak at a conference... On a tropical island during our winter is a good way to go. Uh, incredible activists that we met with and just a sense of how lucky we are in this country, but how much more there is to do. And in terms of that, what, what conference was it and what are you alluding to? This is the Pan-Africa ILGA, so the International Body for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, Intersex and Queer People. And we in Aotearoa are part of Ilga Oceania. So my organisation, Te Whana Whana, is a member of that. So it was pretty wonderful to go up and meet activists from all across Africa. Well, and obviously, I mean, you have been an activist for, well, I'd say probably forever for your whole life, <laughs> but certainly very a very visible and someone that has cared deeply about these things for a very long time. And we will talk about that um, a little bit later on. But obviously, first, let's just start with just you, you know? And obviously, this podcast is about people talking about their sexuality. So how would you define your sexuality? When I first came out, I used the word lesbian, mm-hmm. a word I didn't hear till I was about 16 years old, and thought, ah, that's me. But when I was a little bit older and heard the word takatāpui, mm-hmm. I realised that's more me. And so I use them in different contexts, but always promoting the recognition of the term takatāpui, a traditional term we've reclaimed to incorporate all of our whānau with diverse gender, sexualities and sex characteristics. So I'll say takatāpui, who's lesbian femme. That's a, I reckon that's a great definition. <laughs> um, and I just I noticed you mentioned then that you didn't hear the word lesbian until you were 16. I remember the first time I heard it, I was five, and it was after watching the Top Twins, but you were 16. Um, do you remember the context in which you heard the word? Uh, it was at high school. I'm, I'm a bit older than you, mm. quite a bit older, and so... Only a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was that thing where everybody's swapping terms and words around, mm. and people were just like, oh, somebody's a lesbian, and yeah. like, what does that mean? Yeah. And then when, as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, I think that's me. So I didn't have a lot of dissonance when I came out. Once I had a language for it Mm -hmm. and and knowledge of it, I was also aware from around 15, 16, 17 of same-sex couples because I met them through activist circles. And so it was, so yeah, it would have actually been 15, 16 that I heard the term. So you were already in your activist circles at 15, 16. Mm. Where do you think your passion for activism came from? I think it was a sense of feeling really keenly about the injustice in the world. I was brought up in a home where there was violence and alcohol and a lot of my friends were experiencing the same thing I was, were in very unsafe situations as young people Mm -hmm. 
and it was very obvious the racism that many of Mm. us were experiencing growing up as we did in Dunedin. And so even though there are amazing things about that place and I have such good memories of it, uh, that's one of the things that kind of spiked my passion. And then I met with amazing people and connected up with a whole lot of different issues. So for Mm. us as young people, just being young, uh, as students, as being women, uh, but also as Māori, as Pacifica, And then the Kaupapa itself, Nuclear Free Independent Pacific, the Springbok Tour, the all sorts of mm. things that were happening, uh, homosexual law reform Yeah, when I was a young person. And so all of those things, I grew up into a space of a hotbed of activism, uh, yep. but a way of working that set out what was our relationship as Māori to our Pacific Island whānau, our whanaunga, uh, but also with other other movements, how do we weave our efforts together? Because each of our groups might have been small, but we would mm. always defer to the leadership of a particular group and all of us would come to support each other. And that woven way of working has stood by me the entire life of my activism. It's like sometimes, well, I'd say generally speaking, collaboration tends to work a lot better than competition, I would uh, say. Yes. <laughs> when you're trying to create change, I always say that even if we might have slight differences in how we want to get there, if we have a shared vision, if we mm. have that clarity, and I think that's the absolute core of what drives me is I know what my job is here on this planet and yeah. I know what's my contribution and I just get on with it. And, and you do that very, very well, I would I would argue. Thank you. Well, I won't argue with you, not at this <laughs> stage. I might argue with you a bit later on, depending on what you say to me. No, okay. I won't. Um, although I, w- I am going to go back to competition oh. because I just also wanted to talk about one of the times that we did spend together back in 2002, we were competing for gold at the Olympic Games. We were robbed. We were absolutely robbed. And for people listening and who are thinking, oh, wow, I never knew that Karen O'Leary or Elizabeth Kitty went to the Olympic Games. Um, well, you've learned something new. Also, I guess officially it was the Gay Games in Sydney in 2002, <laughs> wasn't it? Not the actual Olympics. Yes. But wasn't that a good time? It was an incredible time. It was just amazing. My my wife Alofa and I went to the Amsterdam Gay Games and we're crossing through the stadium and just had 50,000 people in the stands and we said, we've got to bring all of our people to the next one, knowing it was in Sydney. So I spent the next four years helping fundraise and organising Team Wellington and bringing our crew through. And can I say, there is a set of photos of our different whānau in our passage as you walk into a house and one of those is of purple ferns with you in that photo that sits on our mantelpiece as you walk into our house. Aww. So just FYI, it was a glorious time. And just O-O-I, which is out of interest, um, do I look pretty much exactly the same as I did in 2002? Oh, exactly the same. Yes. <laughs> so do you actually, to be, to be fair. <laughs> you definitely look exactly the same. <laughs> um, right, let's go back again to the start kind of thing. So obviously you once you had the the terminology and the language to know who you were as a person or how you were feeling. When do you think you first had an inkling of maybe, I guess, and it is it is a point of difference, when did you first, did you ever think about that as a, as a younger child or was it just really getting to that point when you were 15, 16? I've always had a sense of myself of being different, always. Mm. And I was brought up around a lot of extremes. So my mother was the only Pākehā at any of our marae. Mm. Uh, so we were the only kids, uh, our cousins, who were fair. 
Yeah. But when we were in Dunedin, our father was one of the few Māori and we got uh, called horis and mm. uh, people tried to beat us up on the street. Uh, so we knew as young people never to go out by ourselves, we'd get a hiding. Uh, so, oh, yeah. so that kind of very visceral, obvious racism that we experienced as mm. young people it made us really tight, really close. We always, but but we had to be prepared to defend ourselves mm. uh, at a given time. So it was so weird to be too fair in one place, but too dark somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, I was always brought up by my, especially my father. I was the eldest to get a good education, so yeah. I knew from a very young age that I would go to university, and I was one of the few in my family who, by the time I did go, had had already gone. Only a couple of my older cousins across our wider whanau had been there. I was the first, you know, subsequently to get a PhD, um, mm. first in our whole wider whanau to come into parliament. So there were things where my father had a very high expectations of what I would do. And so, again, that made me really different in mm. our whanau, that I had real clarity. I also apparently at seven said that I'd never get married to a man. Wow. Yeah. And one of the reasons was I liked my own name too much and I wasn't going to take anybody else's. So that turned out to be a bit of a prophecy. Absolutely. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you didn't take Alufa's name, did you? No, I did not. Our last names are already hard enough for people to say, let alone to hyphenate them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you should have done it just on purpose. <laughs> oh, I know. We yeah. really, we did have that conversation. It's yeah. like, kere kere aiono, aiono kere kere, too hard. <laughs> So when you when you realised that this was who you were, mm. uh, were um, who did you tell about it? Did you tell anyone? Did you announce it to anyone? Or was it just something that just became part of who you were? It wasn't a big announcement. And and as we know, coming out is a process. It's a gradual mm. thing uh, and you come out over and over. Uh, yeah. We decide, are you going to correct somebody who's making false assumptions? Yes. yes. Uh, when I first thought, we only knew of one local lesbian, and that was Yoko Newman in um, Dunedin, who I just went to talk to and say, you know, I didn't want to claim something that wasn't mine. And so mm. I went to talk to her and say, so I think I might be this thing that you are as well. Am I? Is that correct? And so we just had a simple conversation. I thought, okay then. So as I say, no dissonance, no, oh my God. This is such a big thing. It wasn't. It was like, oh, cool. Now I have a name for it. I have a clarity around it. Then I'm all good. Mm. Uh, I told my family and I remember one of my sisters going, oh, great. You're already a radical and now you're going to be a lesbian. It's just typical. And so it took me a while longer to tell my father, Yeah, another two years, mm-hmm. because he had said really homophobic things in the past. Right. But... Again, he'd brought me up to be strong. He raised me to not suffer idiots and and to to respect people who stood their ground. Yeah. And so I decided, right, as I say, I was prepared to take the hiding, but mm. this is who I was and I needed him not only to know about it, but I needed him to support me. And so that's what I said to him and he said, okay, fine. No big dramas, no big conversation. He just looked at me and went, are you, are you sure? And I went, yes. And he goes, then fine. I'll support you. Wow. And and it was because I was prepared to stand up to him and I was yep. prepared to take whatever uh, was coming if mm. he didn't like it. And and it meant also that dad treated me differently and he protected me across our whole family. I have cousins who are a lesbian or who have transitioned and their whanau didn't support mm. because their father didn't support. 
whereas my father right. did. And by giving that support, gave me protection. Yeah. And then when you got a bit older, so they say in your early 20s, it sounds like you didn't have that, there was no dissonance or anything like that. So did you ever feel like, do you feel like your sexuality is a big part of who you are, a small part of who you are? Is it just something that exists within you? Like how would you, how would you sort of define that kind of thing? I think it's a core cool part of who I am mm. and it can't be separated from everything else. Yeah. Because when I was a young activist, then it was all about the language, it was about the land, it was about the different politics we're involved in, and sexuality wasn't the big issue. Mm. But as I got older, into my 20s, I moved to uh, Wellington, and I realised actually there's a lot of discrimination that comes by just being mm. this sexuality. Yeah. Now, I, I'm lesbian femme. If I don't come out, people assume I'm straight. Yes. Uh, which is a real annoyance to me. So I used to come out all the time, like yeah. purposely, mindfully, yeah. uh, not let anyone assume I was straight and not let anyone assume that if I was with a guy, that was my partner. How did, you, how did you purposely come out? Did you just make a point of announcing it to, the, to anyone, everyone? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did. <laughs> I was <laughs> relentless. Yeah. Uh, they, they would especially if they said, oh, is this your husband or this is your boyfriend? Because that happened all the time. Yeah. And I go, no, because I'm not heterosexual, I'm a lesbian. And so I would say that over and over. What uh, was the general response you'd get? Shock. Yeah. Because they'd look at me. And now if you're during the day and you're in a generally safe space, uh, you could it got got away without too much risk. But I would also do that when people were drinking late at night and some men didn't think that that was acceptable, that I was mm. that thing, yeah. uh, that they th thought that they could turn me, make change me. Oh. Uh, and so I still did that because a little bit outrageous. Yes, I know that about you. <laughs> but I used to also do things like when I was younger and it was a real thing to try and stop men calling us girls. Mm. And I used to say, I'm not a girl, I'm a fully menstruating woman. <laughs> and that was very upsetting yeah. to people, uh, to men, because it's, it's like, just too shocking. You can't, you can, you're not supposed to say that word, Elizabeth. <laughs> I say every single time I got called a girl, because it was done yeah. in a demeaning way. Yeah, you know, now girl has taken on a new way of, of being used in, in today's context. But back then it was a put down. Mm. It was like, hey, little girl, just be quiet. Yeah. That's like, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to be quiet. No, I don't think it suits you, to be honest. <laughs> it really doesn't. But it's because you've got so many good things to say. <laughs> yeah, you know? it always astounds me when people think they can keep me quiet. <laughs> no, I'm speechless. No. <laughs> 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 um, obviously, you've mentioned Alofa a couple of times, and <laughs> she's fantastic, and I think she's really, really funny and just really lovely. Can you tell me a bit about when you guys got together? Uh, we got together back in 1992, so we've been together in February. It'll be 32 years. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good and so happy. We had both been going to events in something called, it was LAUGH, the Lesbian Activity and Recreation Festival, mm -hmm. and her and I had been going to different things. And yeah. on the last day, we're out at Makara Beach, really wild beach outside oh, of yes, Wellington. Yes. And I'd gone to meet my friends, and now I'd seen Alofa the night before it was the dance out at what was called Outrage at the time. Yeah. Yes, and I'd seen her, but I didn't talk to her. And so I'd gone to meet my friends, 
they weren't there. I was just about to leave. I turned around and there was a law firm walking up with one of my friends. So I pretended I'd just arrived and went to say uh, hello. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> and and so then we went into the little cafe that's there. People were just playing games and I was reading with one of my mates and she was playing ping pong and she yep. kept hitting the ball over to me and I thought nothing <laughs> of it. It's such a typical butch thing, but um, I thought nothing of it. I thought, obviously, she's not very good at this game, but she kept hitting it over to me, so she had to come over to me and pick up the yeah. ball from around me um, yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And then everyone moved to sit at the table, and we had this giant game of uh, Chinese checkers, mm. and and there was just this point at which she said so many colours, and I looked at her and I said, so little time. And and we just clicked. And but what was crazy is at that very moment where we looked at each other, someone took a photo of us. So we wow. have a photo of the moment that we clicked. And that is uh, amazing. Yeah, it was pretty wild. And we were those um, the the jokes that people tell about lesbians. <laughs> we got yes. together two weeks later, moved in, never been apart. Well, I just think that's a beautiful love story. And I love love stories, so that's fantastic. Yeah, no, she's pretty awesome. She is pretty awesome. You both are. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the homosexual law reform that happened in 1986. How old were you then? If, then we're going to be able to work out how old you are, so if you don't want to say. But <laughs> okay, I, so. But I think the internet tells people everything anyway. It really does. <laughs> so actually, how old was I? 86 I would have been 21, but of course the lobbying for that started well before then. And so what was your involvement in that like? So I was not a leader in that. I was supporting Mm -hmm. our um, local lesbian and gay group from our other political groups as Māori women's groups and our Young Pacifica groups and as the Māori Students Association. And the big march that we had in Dunedin, I was holding a megaphone. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a TV clip of us coming over this little rise and I'm leading the march, calling out, the, doing the chants. Uh, yeah. But in terms of leadership, no. And in fact, I will remember when that march went through town and I was quite shocked at on the sideline to see my nana and granddad uh, on the street watching in, yeah. a, in astonishment this march coming <laughs> past. Because it was huge. It was so many people. Yeah. The other thing we did, uh, some of my mentors took me up to Wellington and they'd arranged a meeting uh, with Fran Wilde 
And so right, I actually yep. went to Parliament with them, and that was for them to talk about the Māori issues that were impacting on people who were who were lesbian and gay at that time. And I have to say that it was very much focused on lesbian gay. The law was very specific to gay men, mm. but of course yep. it impacted. Um, but just want to acknowledge trans people, non-binary yep. people, intersex yes. people who are all part of that work. Yeah. The other thing that was really telling, and the thing that happens when you stay in the work for a very long time was all of the churches were against homosexual law reform, mm-hmm. uh, all except, I believe, the Unitarian Church. And to be part of putting conversion practices yeah. through law in Parliament this term and mm-hmm. to see nearly every single mainstream church coming in behind it, yeah. it's a very healing thing for people of faith. But at that time, the churches were solidly against this reform and in fact, the public was as well. It was remarkable mm. the way that they got it through Parliament. Remarkable, huge amount of work. Yeah, and I guess like you're talking about, you know, that shift that you know hopefully does happen over time. You know, in terms of the conversion therapy, you know, getting getting banned and all that kind of stuff. I guess would you say that activism and having people to standing up for the things that they believe in and the things that they believe are right is that kind of the key component of, of achieving or affecting positive change? I believe it's completely essential. Uh, change happens at many different levels, but changing the will of the people, I believe, is created through activism, that it, you create a groundswell, you mm-hmm. make people have the conversation. Yeah. When I look at something, so our parties inside parliament uh, we're the very blunt end of change, the passing the law. We can pass law, but if the groundwork isn't happening, the law doesn't make a lot of difference in people's mm. actual lives. So true, yeah. So so we look at the example of marriage equality. Now, that flew through Parliament only because the hard work had happened with civil union acts, the big yes. protests, the ugliness, the fights, the, the was horrible during that time. That had already happened, and mainstream New Zealand looked at that and said, "Ah, this is not who we are. Mm. Actually, it doesn't hurt anybody else to allow same-sex marriage to happen. At that time, civil union, that's when Lofra and I had ours. Yeah. And so by the time it got to marriage equality, it was much more of a formality. It's that the whole country had moved. Yeah, those conversations had been had. Exactly. And that's yep. what the activism does. That's what marching in the street does. It's the people coming up to parliament and saying, politicians, you must do this thing. It's getting mm. on the news and people going, what's actually happening? What are the actual issues? What does this mean in our community? And that's one thing I'm also really thankful for. Those those early activist days is we would do things like stand on the street and talk to people. When everybody did the big hikoi to Waitangi in 1984, mm. we said, well, we could go up there and we can be part of that. That changes nothing in Dunedin. So we yeah. committed that we would stay and we would stop parking people on the streets of Dunedin mm. and try and talk to them about the treaty. Wow. It was... Uh, did it work? <laughs> again, having the conversation. Yeah. Uh, I believe it contributes to it. So in the same way, say for conversion practices, uh, Mm. when I did my petition, 160,000 signatures in one week, by far breaking all records in our country. And, and, you know, that led to this law being sped up Mm. and going through. 
but on the ground it's speaking to those people. And I look at people like my mother and my godmother, Erin Kerekere and Susan Thompson, and they were active members of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Mm -hmm. And they went and talked to different church people across Dunedin as part of their work. So that work on the ground, talking to people, having the conversations creates that bigger change. And they might not Mm -hmm. call that activism, but actually they're getting in there and they're advocating, at least it's Mm. advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. But we need all of those things, all of those elements, the big splashy stuff, but in the end, those conversations, thousands of those conversations. What would you say to the, and I've got my fingers up like quotation marks while I say the word activists, that spend a lot of time in those holes that have been dug by rabbits and just sit on a computer and just send Think horrible things around um, the universe. What would you say to those activists? Again, in quotation marks, because they're obviously not. Are they anti-activists? Well, no, they are of sorts. I guess that they want to. Think you talk to it because you know all of this stuff, and you're very, very. <laughs> <laughs> and you know my point. Are hey? you getting? Yes. You know what I'm getting at. Yeah. So I say they're definitely not activists. Good. That they're not creating or contributing to any kind of conditions that will create change. Mm. They're just detracting for the sake of causing turmoil, of of distrust, because mm-hmm. when you start to create distrust in our institutions, then those institutions lose their power to actually mm-hmm. fix things and make things right. It's very easy to sit on a computer and have a code name and put mm-hmm. your ugliness out into the world. We have to be really, really vigilant for real activists, people creating real change mm. and actually wanting to improve people's lives and give people rights, which they're already yeah. allowed and should have, but do not, uh, we have to be vigilant against that disinformation, the misinformation that can trap people. Because while some people are mindful and they are doing it on purpose, there are people mm. who get lost in a rabbit hole. Yes. Yeah, who who have actually been groomed to do that? It's mm. quite freaky when you read how you know how how people are guided into that rabbit mm. hole. That's they yeah. don't get there by accident. That's just the nature of it, and you just have to care for people and and check that people are okay within that space. But the ones who are causing hate, no, yeah, not acceptable. But can activism help to? improve that situation part of activism is spreading correct information yes yeah yeah it's making sure that when you're looking for information on the topic go to credible sources Mm. the way that the internet now social media has done it conflates all news as Mm. being equal no it used to be it's very obvious what's on um credible tv credible news sources and what's just someone's opinion. Nowadays, really hard to tell them apart. Yeah. Uh, so true, I think true. helping people understand that, putting out the good news, swamping the misinformation. Yes. Is what an activism is key for that. Now, speaking of um, good information, what advice would you, A, give to your younger self, if you have any advice for your younger self, but then also what advice would you give to young people today um, who are part of the rainbow community? 
I'm fortunate to be in a position where I do give advice to the young to people in our community. I write resources. I write give out tips um, on yes. relationships about being takatapui. Um, yeah. I think my younger self, it's yeah, just to keep going. Mm-hmm. It does get better. That it's yeah. worth it. It's worth it to stay. Yeah, because yeah. there were pretty hairy times in my youth. I was wasn't sure I'd be staying around. And, yeah, it's worth it to stay. Well, Elizabeth, I'm so glad that you did stay. <laughs> now, just before we, we wrap it up, I was wondering, going back to the amazing ILGA conference that you were in in lovely Mauritius, what was the what were the main talking points at the conference? A core part of the conference is about how ILGA, Pan-Africa ILGA are organising themselves. Mm. And so what are the key issues that are happening for them? Uh, they've had really repressive laws in that area, some of them quite recent, like we've seen in Mm -hmm. Uganda. So it's sharing advice about how to look after each other, good processes, strategies, tactics for people to use to create safety and change. Mm -hmm. I came over to be part of what was called a mapping desire workshop, but it is looking at our sexuality and saying how have we come to where we are. So actually some of the questions you started off with mm. were some of the things yeah. that we talked about. And actually owning owning our sexuality is a mm. core part of who we are. That's yeah. something that's often neglected. We talk about diverse sexualities, but we only use it in terms of identity as opposed to how what does that look like in terms of our relationships mm. uh, and, and how we share ourselves, who we're intimate with, and how that all works out. So... Yeah. So I shared some of the story again about Lofer and I, how we got yes. together. It's a really good story. A bit more detail too about some of the difficulties from when I was younger and some of the ways, because sometimes when we experience trauma when we're young and that plays out into mm. our relationships. And I think coming back to your question about advice for young people, it's one of the things that I'm really staunch about is to help and to try and work through the trauma we have so that we bring our best selves to our relationships and to our organisations and to our activism because trauma is so common in our communities and we have to acknowledge that sometimes it can impact negatively on our on ourselves, uh, on our relationships and our work. But rising above that, addressing those issues makes us powerful. Mm, absolutely. And just in terms of, you know, obviously I, you, you're making these amazing resources. Where can people access these things, Elizabeth? Uh, the original Takatapui, uh part of the Fano resource, the Mental Health Foundation has the first one, mm-hmm. and yeah. the second one, Growing Up Takatapui, uh, Fano Journeys, is at Rainbow Youth. So this, and I'm actually about to write the third, which is going to be about gender affirming healthcare. Good on you, Elizabeth. And also, thank you so so much. Honestly, you are such an inspiration, and the work that you do does make such a positive difference to so many people so just from me to you thank you so much but I know that that thanks would come from so many people around Aotearoa so keep up the amazing work that you do and thank you so much for talking to me it's been honestly it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much it's always lovely to catch up with you I'm going to come to Gisborne for a beer okay? please alright leave it with me I'm coming in summer remember <laughs> this was Full Disclosure a Stuff and Kale Productions podcast 
Thanks so much for listening. There's a new episode released every Tuesday. You can find them at stuff.co.nz forward slash full disclosure or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on Apple or Spotify or any of the podcast apps, you'll get the latest episode delivered automatically without lifting a finger. Thanks to creator and producer Kate Langdon, stuff producer Jen Black and executive producer Chris Reed, and audio editor John Ropiha with original music by Eilish Wilson. Matiwa Aotearoa. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, tagline there. That, that, I think it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate.